with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we'll have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, global shipping prices continue to rise as the Red Sea crisis deepens, and the UN agency says global tourism will fully recover in the year 2024. And now let's begin with our top story. The global shipping prices continue to rise as the Red Sea crisis deepens. Data from Freighter's terminal shows that the cost of shipping from Asia to Northern Europe has surged 460% compared to mid-October. Some 12% of the global trade was over 1 trillion U.S. dollars passed through the Red Sea annually. However, major shippers are now diverting container ships around the Cape of the Good Hope, adding more than a week to transit time. The IMF says maritime traffic through the Suez Canal is down 37% this year. So, for more on this and the impact of the Red Sea crisis on the global economy, join us on the line now, Ah Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novim Archi Technologies, and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamet University. University. So, Yen, thank you for joining us. And first, what's the importance of the Red Sea in global trade? Hi, good to talk to you, Zhao Yang. So, the Red Sea, you know, it's a very major、um, sea route、uh, to connect Asia、uh, and Europe. And globally, about fifteen percent of the international shipment、uh, pass the Red Sea. And so, the total goods passing it every year.、Uh, It's estimated to reach, you know, one trillion、uh, U.S. dollars. So with now,、um, the Houthis are attacking the、uh, ships, and so many of the shipping companies either suspended、um, their route altogether, or they are think- thinking rerouting,、um, as you mentioned,、uh, through South Africa. And so that added tremendously to the delay、um, for those shipments, not to mention the rising shipping cost.、Um, so we're looking at the shipping cost between Europe and Asia has surged by 170 percent,、um, and many of the ships now are rerouting, which means again significant delays are down the road. And so those means,、um, you know, the, sh- the goods,、um, you know, ranging from tankers for oils to furniture to clothing to automobile parts. Um, will be significantly delayed, or the cost of shipping、uh, will be increasing. So this will have really major impacts、uh, on the global supply chain.、Mm. And so, yeah, no one knows how long will this interruption of services could last. But what are the implications for the trade and global economy if the situation lingers through, you know, going on、uh, spring and beyond? Right, I think that's a great question. So definitely, we don't know how long this is going to last. So the Houthis actually started to attack, you know,、um, ships going from Red Sea、um, as early as 2015. But now、um, their attacks simply got really heightened.、Um, they also employed now new tactics, for example, landing helicopters on those ships and hijacking the entire ship.、Um, as of now, they still have 25 ship crews were detained. So it's just getting worse.、Um, And that's going to last longer before you know things get get better.、Um, the United States has trying to provide you know military protection and you know export to some of these ships. 
but that may not be really the solution and it's possible to escalate the situation. So even if you know this started to die down, we're gonna still see major um, you know, delays because you know all the supply chain is a very complex web. Uh, once the delay started, then it's going to you know, uh, back, uh, create a kind of backlog. It's gonna take time um, to smooth it out. But as of now, I think we're not only looking at some delayed in terms of shipment, but also rising shipment cost. But there are also other costs that would add up. For example, you know, with the you know rising cost of um, the the rising times of transit, you would have to add more you know crew cost, fuel cost, and also let's not forget the insurance cost. Um, the war risk insurance used to charge 0.02 percent um, of the total worth of the shipment. And now the rate has gone up to 0.7%. So that means, you know, this is going to create, you know, millions of dollars of more costs um, for some of these mega ships. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely going to increase prices of the goods um, on top of the delay. So we're going to likely to see, you know, now the manufacturers are the first to be hit, you know, by these problems. But then later on, I think consumers will soon, you know, find the prices of products increasing or the shelves um you know, stay empty for a while. Mm. So Jiahe, we know that the uh, cost of shipping are going up, but not all added expenses have been passed to consumers so far. If you look at the United States, for example, the market hit two new records with the S&P 500 and Dow. So when do you think the consumers are going to start feeling the pinch first? If if you talk about the impact of this uh, Red Sea crisis to the United States economy, I think it's it's well it's probably the economy. If you look at the three major economies in the world, uh, the European economy, the um, Asian economy, and the U.S. economy, the U.S. economy is perhaps the one that is hit the least because of this uh, Red Sea crisis because its imports coming from uh, countries like China and Japan goes through the Pacific Ocean, and its imports coming from Europe goes through the um, Atlantic, and most of the shipping going to the United States can actually bypass the Red Sea. So the Red Sea crisis is mainly affecting the trade between in Japan, Europe, you know, South Korea, Europe. This uh, sea line has been strongly affected, mm-hmm. and the cost has been rising. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, this uh, crisis is actually putting a small influence on the trade cost. It's it's not something really big because ships can still go through, um, you know, all, all the way through Africa and just pay more money. If you look at the economy, it's always this. A rising business cost is the least thing that you want to worry about. The most thing that you want to worry about sometimes is things like uh, a hyperinflation, these kind of things. But Rising cost can always be compensated uh, by the market. Only the cost will be higher for consumers. Mm. So, yeah, so experts warned that the Red Sea crisis would create a chaotic period for Europe manufacturers and retailers. So how do you see it? Yeah, so I agree with Jahe to some degree. I do think that is mostly right now a cost issue. But then I think, you know, Jiayang, you're definitely right. Uh, with European countries, uh, especially the automobile industries, uh, we're talking about, you know, Tesla, Volvo, and these companies already seeing the delay in some of the important shipments for, you know, the automobile comp- components. So I think that would definitely in some ways affect the manufacturing sector and that it's not just by uh, because of the cost, but really production interruption and delay. 
Um, and I think also going forward, I think companies would just worry more about the securities of the supply chain, you know, the disruptions, uh, the resilience. And so I think that would prompt them in some ways to rethink about their supply chain. And I think that could be a problem in the sense that you know, as we know, um, if the companies are not having this kinds of risk factors, they would, you know, they would um, arrange the supply chain in a certain manner that would really reflect efficiency um, and, you know, the cost effectiveness and the timely, you know, turnaround of their products. But now if they have to factor this kinds of security issues, you know, um, this, the, 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 the disruptions of the shipments and so on and so forth, they may want to localize the supply chain. And so over the long term, I think this is not necessarily good for efficiency, um, not to mention uh, when you really concentrate a lot of your supply chain, so to speak, in one basket, I think that would also subject to, you know, a lot of vulnerabilities. And last but not the least, I also can see this going down to a vicious cycle because the more you worry about, you know, supply chain issues, the more you want to bring supply chain home, then the less you are cooperating, you know, in the global economy, and therefore you could, you know, end up, um, you know, increasing some of the tensions. Um, because again, if, if you value less of that cooperation, um, then it becomes harder for countries, you know, to move in the same direction. Mm. So I see this is as a small event, but it could have long term impacts. Um, especially, especially, I think if this crisis is not well managed, um, it's very you know, possible, it's a like, it's a possibility that, you know, this crisis could spread. Um, we have already seen the United States, of course, have already sending their convoy, and this is very different than what the U.S. did before. So I think there is a real danger in terms of the escalation as well. So Jianghe, talking about the supply chain issue, we know that uh, the car companies like Volvo and Tesla have found themselves without key components. And as a result, they have suspended some productions in Europe. So what key components are we talking about? And what alternatives do these companies have? If you look at the global business nowadays, it's a large industrial chain, especially for things uh, as large as things like shipping, aircraft, automobile, these kind of things. Um, you know, no country produces all these things um, just by itself. They actually import a lot of things from other countries and we form what we call the global uh, production chain and the cost of this chain is actually the lowest. And when you look at automobile companies, um, like you said, Tesla, they import a lot of equipment, you know, uh, parts of their cars, the kind of inner furniture, these kind of things from China. Uh, they import the kind of uh, chips used for these cars from China, South Korea and Japan. And they also import the raw material of their tires, uh, the, the rubber from countries like Indonesia. Uh, so, so you have all these kind of things. Uh, and Tesla got a very large factory in Shanghai as well. Uh, so you've got all these things uh, coming from different countries and regions. And when you have something that, you know, interrupts the global uh, production chain, like the Red Sea crisis is having, um, it will pose some kind of, uh, you know, cost of pressure to this kind of uh, global production chain. But the good thing is that, it, as Yan just said, it's just a cost. So, I mean, cost is actually bearable to many economies, especially for China. If you look at China's CPI right now, it's, it's heading around the 0% territory. Well, the most healthy CPI, according to the economic theory, 
would be somewhere around two to three percent. So a slight rising of price is actually quite bearable to the Chinese economy. And if you look at the U.S. economy, inflation is actually coming downward in uh, recent months. So people are worrying that the Red Sea crisis might pose some pressure to the U.S. economy. Right. So I think as Jack was pointing out, um, you know, cost could be a major impact.、Um, in other words, when you adding all these extra costs of rerouting、uh, to elsewhere,、um, so you have, like I mentioned, right, the fuel cost、uh, when you have to go through South Africa, the Cape of Good Hope,、um, that added, you know,、uh, two weeks of of sailing time that increased the fuel cost, and then the crew cost, and also insurance premium cost. So all this would add up, and so that would increase the costs. So that would, in some ways, you know,、um, increase the inflationary pressure. But of course,、um, as we just mentioned,、um, you know, this Red Sea, even though it's very important, it does only account for about 15% of the global,、uh, you know,、uh, international, you know, shipments. So it might not be a tremendous,、um, you know,、uh, you know, a huge. Significant increase in in the cost and the prices. That said, I would say though,、um, you know, when you look at the international shipping, there has already been a lot of hiccups, right? So a lot of ships that were already、uh, used to sail at the Panama、um, uh, Canal now they re- rerouted because you know the wet, the the、uh, climate change and the lack of water、um, has already reduced、uh, the capacity of the Panama Canal、um, to you know to allow these ships to come through. And so now they're rerouting to the Red Sea, but then now they're again, you know, cannot,、uh, or they're afraid of the attacks, and now they reroute again. So I think it's just, you know, the, the supply chain could be very fragile with all these shipment delays and disruptions, and so that could be a bigger impact when you think about, you know, putting all these factors together. So、mm-hmm. to say the least, it's not conducive、um, to lowering inflation for sure.、Um, but how long and how much the impact? Then I think that really remains to be seen,、um, but I am quite concerned about you know the possibility of escalation or the long drawn out. Um, kind of disruptions,、mm. and yeah, also a lot of、uh, geopolitical turbulence is now you know affecting the world economy. But、uh, the forecasts say that Asia will be the world's growth engine this year, and the region is supposed to grow by an average of five percent. So, how do you explain the main factors for this? Right, so I think the re- Asian economy has really been the bright spot.、Um, for one, it has, you know. Uh, achieved a really stable growth,、um, so this is a region now is、um, you know void of major conflicts, unlike in Europe or you know Middle East. So the kinds of stability is really helping、um, to promote economic growth. And second is I think you know the Asian economy has sort of the best of the two worlds in the sense that on the one hand,、uh, within the region within Asia,、um, there's very vibrant trade among the countries.、Um, you know we have the ASEAN countries with Trading with China, and they have the agreements of,、uh, you know, RCEP,、uh, and then Japan, South Korea, and these ASEAN ASEAN economies, they all trade very actively with each other.、Um, but at the same time, unlike the European economies, these countries have their economy autonomy. So they have the autonomy、uh, in policy making. So that also allowed them to have the necessary, you know, fiscal support or monetary、uh, easing when their economies need. So I think that also helped, you know, to promote growth in this region with the kinds of integration at the regional level, but still maintain the policy autonomy. And、mm. last but not the least, I think you know the Asian economy also has very effective, you know, regional supply chain.、Um, also have very 
significant, you know, innovations, technological developments um, uh, among them. So I think that's why the Asian economy re will remain the locomotive uh, force um, for the global global economy. Um, not only in the past, but also continue on um, this year and in the future as well. Mm. And so Jiahe, actually, Yan talk about uh, Asia economy. What about China? China has actually sent a clear signal that it will make more efforts to stabilize the capital market and improve the investor confidence. And so what measures have been taken can be taken? And what's the outlook of China's capital market and China's economy? Yeah, we, we have seen a lot of information around the market nowadays about how China will be saving the market, including setting the fund that buys the large uh, companies, ETFs. And actually, if you look at the uh, Shanghai and Shenzhen 300 ETF, uh, it has got a lot of um, subscription uh, these days. A lot of money actually flow into these funds. Uh, and we have seen that the PBOC has, uh, the China Central Bank has just cut its uh, reserve requirement last year uh, by 50 uh, basic, basic points. It also, uh, the, the CSRC, the Security Regulatory Committee, has also announced its um, support to the capital market. So it's, it's actually quite a lot of news coming out regarding the supporting of the Asia market and the Hong Kong market. And we actually, we have saw the market has been rebounding pretty well. Um, and if you look at the valuation of China's equity market right now, um, actually draw a chart of the Shenzhen company index and look at the PB valuation it's actually one of the lowest valuations in its own history of over three decades it's been about five or six times in history that this index reached this valuation as it is right now uh, and if you look at the performance of the market in the next three to four years it's always a bull market so it's definitely time for you to join in in this market just to pick the right stocks and time will reward the investors uh, with, with a lot of money, I would say. Well, we're speaking with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novim Archie Technologies, and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Villamette University. And after a short break, we'll take a look at what the UN says about global tourism this year. Stay with us. D-Dime, a podcast of CGT Radio. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The World Tourism Organization says global tourism is set to recover from the pandemic fully this year. A recent projection by the UN says this year's international tourist arrivals will be 2% higher than in the year 2019. Increased global air connectivity and a strong recovery of Asian markets are the driving forces of a complete rebound in tourism activities. However, the organization describes geopolitical instability in the Middle East and elsewhere as a key risk affecting confidence among travelers. So yeah, actually, the World Tourism Organization says the global tourism is set to recover from the pandemic this year fully. What do you think are the main factors contributing to it? 
Right. So I think, as you mentioned, um, they cited factors um, such as, you know, the pent up demand. Um, again, you know, after pandemic, um, they now are longing for travel abroad. So the kinds of pent up demand is going to help to, you know, drive up global tourism. Um, they also cited increased air connectivity and also the stronger recovery of the Asian markets um, as the main reasons. So when you look at Asia and the Pacific, for example, um, their recovery from the pandemic uh, was still not as high as other regions. So they basically reached 65% of the pre-pandemic uh, global tourism level uh, last year in 2023, you know, compared to uh, Europe, uh, Middle East, Africa, they all reached, you know, over, uh, you know, uh, over 90%. So Asia is in some ways lagging behind in terms of their recovery in the global uh, tourism. But that's the reason why um, they think that, that the global tourism is going to grow a lot is because there's a still very large room um, for Asia and the Pacific to increase um, their, uh, you know, uh, recovery in the tourism market. But mm -hmm. that said, I think, you know, they also caution about, um, you know, several factors that could pull back, um, you know, the global tourism, um, as you mentioned, the geopolitical, you know, conflicts, including armed conflicts uh, in, you know, both in Europe and also in the Middle East. Um, there's also rising costs and rising, you know, interest rates, oil prices. Um, all these would also in some ways pull back um, on uh, international travel, um, not to mention the most recent episodes of this Boeing um, airplane incidents. So I think, you know, that in some ways would also become, you know, a, a, some kinds of barrier um, for the kind of recovery. Mm -hmm. So Jiahe, so what new trends do you find in the global tourism after the COVID pandemic? Well, when we look at the global tourism industry, it's actually been shrinking slightly after the COVID pandemic. Uh, one reason is that the COVID hits the confidence of a lot of travelers. Uh, the other thing is that because the COVID has been lasting pretty long, I mean, if you remember, it's about three years. So a lot of tra traveling agencies, especially for the global traveling, people need travel agencies and guides to guide their uh, traveling in a country that they don't even speak the language about. And a lot of travel agencies actually got closed during these three years. I mean, not many of them had the money to, you know, last for three years. And a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the, the staff of the traveling agencies actually shifted their jobs. So it takes a while for the whole industry to get recovered. I mean, if you look at the China's tourism industry, for example, uh, the domestic traveling industry has been quickly recovered within, I think, it's about six or seven months. And we have seen that the uh, domestic traveling market just uh, went, to, went back to where it was. But the international traveling is still shrinking uh, compared with what's been going on in 2019. So it takes a long while before this whole industry recovers. But as long as the world remains peace and not another pandemic comes back again, this industry will, will finally recover. We will see that one day. So, Yan, so what are the main reasons for the tourism surge in the Middle East last year? And to what extent could the geopolitical instabilities, you know, affect its tourism this year? Right. So I think last year um, there has been increase uh, in, you know, tourism in the Middle East. And part of reason, I think, also has to do with the way um, they, you know, facilitate the travels um, to allow, you know, more people coming to uh, Middle East, um, for example, they have done, uh, you know, increasing the travel uh, in terms of tourist visa 
um, to bring you know Middle East and Africa with some of the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council together, countries together, and that really helped to facilitate the kinds of uh, travel uh, you know visas for for tourists. So that helped to facilitate the intra-Africa travel um, and also you know allow more uh, tourists um, from you know elsewhere. So the kinds of visa and travel facilitation, you know, it's really, I think, one major uh, assist, uh, major helper um, to bring back tourism uh, to the Middle East and to Africa. And I think, you know, similarly, China now has, you know, um, uh, provided uh, visa free for six countries, um, including, you know, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain and Malaysia. And so I think that kinds of visa facilitation would also, you know, allow China to, uh, you know, improve its international tourism destination um, as, as, a, as a destination. Um, but that said, I think, you know, because of the armed conflicts and in the Middle East, um, so it's, you know, it's concerning if that would in some ways deter um, the international travelers. Um, but again, I think, you know, there are, you know, some very interesting um, events that are going to happen. For example, you know, people may go to uh, Europe to, you know, watch the Olympic Games. Um, and again, like I said, China is going to welcoming more tourists. So hopefully that would help to, you know, promote global tourism, you know, despite these concerns and uncertainties of geopolitical and, you know, armed conflicts. So Jiahe, so when do you think China's outbound tourism will return to the pre-pandemic level? And how will that contribute to the overall recovery in global tourism? It's actually one of the largest, largest things the global tourism industry can actually expect. I mean, China's outbound tourism industry, because if you look at uh, China's outbound tourism industry right now, it's actually 30 percent of what's before the pandemic. I didn't really check the data, but the, the number is really low. So the whole industry is recovering really slow because of the language. I think the main obstacle over here is the language. But the, the bright side is that uh, because it is not yet recovered. So its recovery in the future will bring a lot of momentum to the growth of the global tourism industry. Uh, currently, the Chinese government is actually putting a lot of efforts with uh, encouraging both the outbound and the inbound tourism industry. I mean, the global traveling, uh, we have seen a lot of uh, measures ha has been lifted for foreigners to come into China with their visa application. And some countries has got granted from the Chinese government that they don't even have to apply for a visa at all. Uh, recently, a lot of countries has been added to this list. So, so you you have seen a lot of uh, actions conducted by the Chinese government. So mm. I think in the next three to five years, we will see this industry gradually recover. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novim Archie Technologies, and also Yan Liang, Professor of Economics, Willamette University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Mm.